Welcome to CMS On Air, the podcast on migration and refugee issues, brought to you by the Center for Migration Studies of New York. I'm Emma Winters, CMS's Communications Coordinator. In this episode, you'll hear me speak with Anna Gallagher, the Executive Director of CLINIC, the Catholic Legal Immigration Network, Inc. She has practiced immigration and refugee law for more than three decades, working in the United States, Central America, and Europe. We spoke at CMS's office in February, before the coronavirus was declared a global pandemic. During the podcast, you'll hear us discuss the Migrant Protection Protocols, MPP, commonly called the Remain in Mexico program, as well as U.S. asylum policies. Before the pandemic, these policies all presented enormous challenges to immigrant families. The COVID-19 pandemic has magnified that impact. As of this release, all MPP cases are postponed until at least June 22nd. Those waiting for their asylum hearings must continue to wait in Mexican border cities without adequate shelter or space to observe social distancing guidelines. Additionally, an order from the Center for Disease Control has closed borders to all individuals without documentation, including asylum seekers. During the podcast, you'll also hear Anna Gallagher shares what gives her hope, in spite of the current administration's exclusionary policies. Here's our conversation from February. You know, many of our listeners are f- familiar with Clinic's work, uh, but for those who may not be, could you say a little bit about Clinic's mission and the scope of the organization? Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, so, Clinic is a, an affiliate organization. Uh, we're a network. Our mission is to welcome the stranger, essentially, by providing, uh, supporting organizations build and deliver immigration legal services to low-income immigrants and migrants. So we are a network of almost 400 nonprofits across the United States, uh, including Catholic Charities Immigration Legal Services, other faith-based organizations, and secular organizations that provide direct legal representations to immigrants and refugees in the United States. And also now we have a project where we're providing support legal assistance directly um, to our um, brothers and sisters, our immigrant brothers and sisters in Morris. Clinic generally does not do direct representation. We do A to Z, meaning we support an organization comes to us. They want to provide immigration legal services. We help them get off the ground. We train. We give training and legal services. We have a hotline, which is especially hot these days, mm-hmm. of lawyers who answer questions. Um, we do mentor cases. We step in where needed, for example, in the Mississippi raids when they happened. We had people uh, involved in assisting uh, the, the the immigrants there reopen their cases, remain in the United States. Um, trying to think, we do advocacy. We do great advocacy before the administration. Uh, we do religious immigration services. So we um, apply for uh, visas and green cards for religious workers, particularly concerned now with the travel ban and our Nigerian brothers and mm. sisters who are coming over um, to, to, to work with religious communities in the United States. So I think that's what we do, and I'm sure I'm missing something, but that's well, it. That's quite a lot. So <laughs> thank you for all your good work with uh, Clinic. Um, and yeah, I wanted to ask you a little more about uh, the program in Ciudad Juarez that you mentioned that's offering uh, legal guidance there to people who are trying to seek asylum in the U.S. 
And so what policies uh, prompted Clinic to start that program? Great need and no one else was doing it. <laughs> and so, <clears throat> as I said, we generally don't do operations on the ground. However, where there is a need and no one has stepped in to address that need, Clinic will become involved. And for example, we started in Tijuana when in November of 2018, when there were hundreds and hundreds, thousands of people coming to Tijuana seeking protection in the United States, and there was the infamous tear gassing incident um, of the migrants and the refugees, uh, hundreds of volunteers went to the border, many attorneys, and clinic stepped in and did the logistics. We got it organized. We sent one of our folks, Elise Guerra, down. He set up the center where we provided Know Your Rights intakes, consultations, did all the logistics to receive the volunteers and direct them towards the, to provide services, direct services to the migrants. So we started there. Um, and as we often do, uh, we, consistent with our principle of subsidiarity, we pulled out when things started to uh, solidify. We had another NGO came in, they took it over, and there was no need for mm -hmm. clinic to do that, so we step out because we support organizations in building and doing the work. Um, <clears throat> when the situation started in Mars and thousands of people arrived and were in shelters and on the streets, one of our board members, Bishop Seitz, um, spoke with us and urged us to, to, to start uh, to, 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 to send folks there. And that's mm -hmm. essentially what we did. There was no one else in Mars that was providing direct, whether it was providing consultations, know your rights, or uh, counseling on cases. Mm. Uh, so we went there in August, opened up operations in October. Okay. Uh, and since October, we have a staff attorney, we have an accredited rep, we have a volunteer coordinator, and we visit um, several shelters. We go to where the people are. So we go to several shelters, we do regular consultations, we help people prepare their cases, their initial filings for court. Mm -hmm. If they're applying for asylum or protection, we help them fill out the application so they can go to court and file. Um, and we are slowly but surely developing a core of volunteers. Mm -hmm. So folks, anyone that's interested in volunteering, Spanish speakers, wonderful if you have immigration experience, but if not in your attorneys, uh, paralegals, interpreters, etc., mental health workers, please go to our website at cliniclegal.org and uh, click on Estamos Unidos. Thank you. Um, and so what, what are your biggest concerns about the migrant protection protocols or what's been come to be more commonly called the Remain in Mexico program? So my biggest concern is it essentially eliminates access to asylum and humanitarian protection on the border. Hmm. Um, so folks need to know this is a man-made problem. This is a, a problem created by this administration. Under U.S. law and under international law, if someone comes to our borders, and they're fleeing persecution and they're afraid to return home. They have a right to ask for asylum in the United States or humanitarian, other forms of humanitarian protection. And usually what will happen is, they, what should happen is that they will be admitted, they'll be detained, uh, they'll go through an initial screening process, and then there's a determination whether or not they're a flight they're a risk of flight if they're placed in proceedings, meaning they don't show up for their hearings, or they're a danger to the community. And if they don't, aren't either of those, they should be released. So there's a system in place. We have an Immigration and Nationality Act. We have laws. We have policies. We have regulations to receive people, including large numbers of people, process them, admit them, and determine whether or not they should stay in this country. Um, and essentially with this practice, Everyone is forced to stay in Mexico along the border 
with risky, uh, in, in risky situation, facing physical danger, emotional danger, trauma, um, living in, for example, in Juarez, there's 12, I think, now this is last count, things change all the time. There's 12 registered shelters <laughs> with the government. Um, there's 15,000 people in Juarez. There's 60,000 people along the border. There are not sufficient bed space or safe places for all of the migrants, the forced migrants that are at the border seeking protection to the United States. In addition, in Juarez, with 15,000 people, there's only two organizations there that advise on U.S.-based protection systems and assist people in their applications. So that's us and HIAS. There are other organizations that will go in, but imagine, just imagine, you're running a small law firm, you're in Juarez, you have 15,000 people there and they need help. So essentially what this administration has done by preventing access to counsel and by refusing admission of this population that has a right to seek asylum, they have eliminated access to asylum. And so there have also been some new requirements that require people to seek asylum in uh, certain countries they Mm -hmm. uh, transit through, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, Guatemala. So how has that worked in uh, concert with the uh, MPP program? So, you know, under the law, and and again, this changes and things happen along the border that shouldn't happen um, and that are surprising and that are not uh, consistent with the law. People that are uh, subject to MPP are all Spanish speakers arriving at the border, and now they have added Brazilians, right? So that category of people, if they come to the border or if they are caught after they cross illegally into the United States, they are issued notices to appear, hearing notices saying, come to court, mm-hmm. and this is an MPP case, meaning you're going to wait in Mexico, mm-hmm. right? Um, so that's what happens to that population. Um, there were safe third country agreements recently signed. So so the, that population, if they're already on the border and they have those MPP notices, they should remain at the border in order to be able to attend their hearings wherever MPP is. Mm-hmm. So that's that population. People that come to the United States... Um, I'll give you an example of Hondurans and Salvadorans, pass through Guatemala, come through Mexico, and do not seek asylum in Guatemala Honduras, they can be turned back. They can be, the United States can admit them, and I put that in quotes, meaning they let them in and then they put them on planes and send them back to Guatemala hmm. because they should apply for, for, for asylum in Guatemala. And they've been, that's been a recent, they signed these agreements last year. Um, recently, for example, in January, mid-January, they sent 143 Hondurans and Salvadorans back to uh, Guatemala to seek asylum. And I think that according to the reports we have, um, there was only a small handful that applied for asylum um, in Guatemala. And not sure what happened to the rest of the folks. Right. So really think about it. They've made this dangerous journey up. They've gone through Mexico. They're at the border living in, in, in very risky situations. They approach the border. The United States lets them in and then sends them back to Guatemala, mm-hmm. a country from which thousands and thousands of people are fray- fleeing, and they do not have a working asylum system. Right. So there's no asylum along the southern border. And so what are the prospects then for, for people who are subject to MPP? What are their chances of getting asylum or accessing the asylum system, mm-hmm. um, having been cut off from legal support? Hmm. So uh, that's our biggest concern. Um, 
that in in El Paso, for example, the 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 um, the um, approval rate for um, asylum cases or other forms of humanitarian protection is two percent. That means two percent of the people that go to court in El Paso, the immigration court in El Paso, and say, "I'm afraid to go back home," they let two percent of those people stay in, and everybody mm-hmm. else is deported. Um, so these cases, so in Juarez, 15,000 people, the majority of people, for example, I was there at Christmas. Uh, I spent Christmas week there, interviewed primarily um, Central Americans. Most were fleeing gang violence and particular gang violence targeted at them. Also women that are experiencing domestic violence. Um, U.S. law recognizes under certain circumstances that those sorts of cases qualify for protection. Mm -hmm. We should be very clear about that, despite the fact that the Attorney General, that there's been Attorney General decisions under this administration that suggest otherwise. The law clearly contemplates people fleeing from those situations have a right to be protected in the United States. However, those cases are complex too, and especially given this administration's attitude towards them, um, and how the immigration courts themselves are becoming weaker and weaker. So in order to prevail in those cases, people need lawyers and they need good lawyers and they need lawyers that are going to fight and understand the complexities of these cases. So 15,000 people in Juarez, right? Two organizations there with less than a couple of attorneys and then volunteers maybe in the hundreds. So I would imagine the thing that we're greatest, most concerned about is that the majority of the people that are subject to MPP will not have access to counsel and will be deported. And we will deport hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of refugees back to their countries of persecution. And we have um, sort of a policy update here in our migration update. And for a few months, I've been sending that update and editing it and you know it's just really shocking to see how frequently these policies are changing um and so have have those sort of changes uh made it more difficult for clinic to do its work made it more difficult Mm. for those lawyers to uh adequately represent people Mm. yes yes very much so for example for clinic um in terms of our work what we do is we advise we have our hotline right Mm -hmm. the expert hotline our call numbers have increased. They increase monthly. Um, what we're concerned most about, too, is so in terms of our work, we're producing more webinars, more alerts, more updates in, in large numbers. Every time something new comes out, mind you, we have almost 400 affiliates. We need to notify them immediately. Mm-hmm. We get the information out, the public charge uh I think as soon the decision, the Supreme Court decision in the public charge mm-hmm. saying, okay, you can implement this. Um, we had a webinar, I think, within two or three days after. I had mm-hmm. several hundred, I think five or six hundred people signed up already. Yeah. Um, so that's clinic. But the, th- the people that we're most concerned about are our affiliates, the accredited reps, the attorneys, right? Mm-hmm. Because their jobs, because of all these changes and how complex they are and implementation, um, their jobs are two to three times harder than before. People are very afraid. So not only are they, is their job two to three times harder because the information's coming fast at them, it's not clear, things change, judges make mistakes, they're implemented wrong, but also the people that they serve are more and more traumatized and fearful and Mm -hmm. need much more attention than before. Yeah, yeah. And so what are your biggest concerns about 
um, the direction of immigration law and policy now. Um, so I, I'm going to not answer that question. I, I'm going to answer it, but with a positive, and mm-hmm. then I'll explain my concerns. Yes. So one thing that makes me uh, really happy is to see um, how local, how state, uh, cities, and lo- mm-hmm. local communities are coming together um, to provide to a company immigrants and refugees to create laws and, and, you know, statute or laws and and policies locally to say, we're not going to do this. We're going to stand by our immigrant brothers and sisters. So that's really, that's very positive for for me as an executive director and for my staff. Um, Also litigators across the country. And we actually have done quite a bit of litigation this last year. um, And and including the public charge, Mm -hmm. we were, um, we were involved in the litigation, the public charge, but we are filing litigation more and more, either as an organizational plaintiff, as counsel or co-counsel. Mm. Also filing uh, amicus briefs with the Supreme Court. Um, so we're doing that. The litigators are our first line of defense, and I'm really happy with them. They, as soon as something comes out, mm-hmm. people are lined up and ready to file and say, this is mm-hmm. wrong, you can't do this. Mm-hmm. So I'm really positive about that. In terms of concerns, I'm concerned that um, immigrants are always... Um, despite which administration is in power, easily scapegoated. Um, no matter what happens, it's going to take a, quite a bit of time to unwind this um, and to turn this back. I'm very concerned about that. I'm also concerned about my staff and the affiliates mm-hmm. and how they handle it um, because it's nonstop and it's distressful um, and they have more and more work. And uh, so I'm concerned about them. And frankly, I'm concerned about kids across America that lived in mixed households. I can't imagine being a child of a mother and a grandmother. I can't imagine my granddaughter and my grandson worrying about their parents, that their parents might disappear tomorrow. So they're the sort of things I'm concerned about. Yeah. Well, thank you. And thank you for sharing about clinics work. And we certainly appreciate and rely on it here at CMS. Here. Well, thank you so much, Emma. It's been a delight. You can learn more about Clinic, including volunteer opportunities, by visiting cliniclegal.org. CMS On Air's theme music is provided by Danny Duberstein and The Music Case. For more podcasts like this one, you can follow CMS On Air on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find a full transcript of this episode, or get more information on CMS's research, publications, and events, visit us at cmsny.org.